Pacific Northwest. I'm Jeremy Scott as we enter the world that's somewhere between the paranormal and the abnormal. Well, the sun is certainly getting a lot of attention these days. We could say that the sun is acting abnormally. If you've been paying attention, uh, the solar flares and the coronal mass ejections have been intensifying. We've got the coming solar eclipses. Eclipses, of course, we've got the one this Saturday, October the 14th, at about 9.16 a.m. Pacific Time. That's 11.16 Central, 12.16 Eastern, etc., etc. Nearly 1 billion people across much of the North and South American regions will be able to watch a mesmerizing celestial occurrence, an eclipse of the sun. Now, the moon is going to partially block the sun, which creates an annular solar eclipse with this cosmic ring of fire, as it's being called. Now, the phenomenon will be visible along a 125-mile-wide path of annularity between Oregon and Texas, spanning 10 countries. However, much of the United States is only going to see a partial eclipse. And those who are just outside the path of annularity will experience a partial solar eclipse where the moon will appear to take a bite out of the sun. It is the first eclipse of this type that can be seen in the United States since 2012, and it will be the last until the year 2046. Now, scientists are using this weekend's eclipse as a practice For the total solar eclipse, which is happening next April, April 8th, 2024. And later this month, on October 28th, a partial lunar eclipse will be visible from much of the Eastern Hemisphere, including Europe, Africa, Asia, Antarctica, and Oceania. Now, during that partial lunar eclipse, the moon will pass through the Earth's shadow making it appear less bright than usual. And these coming solar eclipses, they're happening at a time, a very active time in the current solar cycle, with activity ramping up to a solar maximum, maybe as soon as next year. I don't know about you, friends, but growing up, anything that had to do with space 
grabbed my attention, whether it was a television program, a newspaper article, or even a book at the library, whether that be the public library or the school library. I was always fascinated with those subjects. And so tonight, I'm going to geek out just a little bit and bring you along for the ride as we're going to discuss these solar eclipses and actually a lot of space news with none other than Dr. Sky, Steve Cates. He has been engaged in the science of astronomy, space, aviation, and weather since a young child, kind of like myself, but... He's much more uh, knowledgeable about uh, these subjects than of than am I. During his college years, he was a student of the legendary astronomer Clyde Tumbaugh at New Mexico State University, the discoverer of the, the then-known planet Pluto. And his expertise is in the realms of astronomy, space, aviation, and weather. He's all over the place. You've seen him. You've heard him. He's here and now. Dr. Sky, Steve Cates, welcome into the Parabnormal after five years. Yes. Well, it's good to be with you, Jeremy. Thank you for the invite. And uh, sorry it took so long, but we're all busy, like yourself, uh, expanding people's minds as you do so do so eloquently, talking and what? Opening our minds to the things that what? The mainstream media may not really want to talk about, but they sure pay attention. And or they like to give 30 seconds uh, to, or, or a yes. minute to uh, sure. with, with no sort of perspective. So we're going to do it justice tonight. Uh, you're just the guy to talk about uh, the eclipse that's happening this Saturday. So October 14th, it's known as the Ring of Fire. I mean, I gave a brief explanation, and I'm sure you could do me one better. Uh, tell us about this uh, Saturday's eclipse. Well, it's fascinating, Jeremy, because this annular eclipse, often described, as you mentioned, as the Ring of Fire, it happens because what we consider in space and science, sacred geometry, what's that? Look where else in the solar system or other locations where objects come together and cross each other and at times can actually cover each other. And in this particular case, an annular eclipse happens when the moon reaches or near a position called apogee, when it's farthest away from us. So as people all over the listening area get to see, hopefully, maybe some in the path of annularity, others with the partial eclipse, what's happening is the moon is just literally too small to be able to cover the full diameter of the sun. Now, if we backtrack a minute, the entire moon, if you look at the diameter, which is so incredible, it's 2,159 miles across. And I like this explanation, and I think people will too. If you were on the right side of the moon, and that was New York City, the left side, the opposite edge, would be Phoenix, Arizona, literally 2,159 miles away across. So now we look at the sun, 93-plus million miles away, and that size and the moon, certain times of our, you know, day, we see both of these objects come in close proximity. Now, the opposite side of that would be the total solar eclipse. And you got it right, folks, listening out there. When that moon is now at its closest position to the Earth, it has that diameter to cover up the entire disk. So a warning, but kind of on a gentle side. Look, what could that be? When you're preparing to look at this eclipse, you really need to have the proper solar glasses. And I know this goes back, Jeremy, to the 2017 total solar eclipse. When people were buying, literally, just you know, buying them right off yeah. the shelves, there was this controversy, and I think you know about it too. The listeners may not. There was a certain disparity in the quality 
of these solar glasses. So myself, without naming the company I bought this from, I decided to get the coolest pair of like steampunk motorcycle glasses goggles to be out in the field and thought that would be a cool way instead of the traditional paper glass that people sell. So lo and behold, I order a few and I get them. And not to disparage the company that I got them from, but when I got them, I was in in shock. I took them, stood outside to test them out, and they were nothing more than green sunglass, not solar glasses. So you have to be careful of that. So I want to make kind of an interesting analogy of how you can actually watch this eclipse. Let's say you don't have the solar glasses. And this, everybody out there listening, of course, would want to know that when you look at this eclipse, the smallest amount that the moon is covering, you really need to pay attention. But the ring of fire one, you need to pay attention to, folks, because here it is. When that moon glides across the sun and you have the solar glasses, everything's fine. But people are tempted to look up, even during the time when the annularity, the ring of fire exists. We suggest not, unless you have the solar glasses. But here's another way to do this. And we do a lot of children programs when I'm based here out of Phoenix, Arizona. And I told them this is a great way to do this. Take a saltine cracker, I know this may sound comical to some. Some of them have 13 holes. Some of them have 16. Take that little cracker, and with your, the sons of your back, take that cracker and say your left hand and put a sheet of paper in front of the cracker. So if that eclipse takes place, more so for people who are seeing this deep eclipse, you'll see how many holes there are in the cracker, 13, 16, or whatever. And then for kids, they love it because it's a safe thing. It's kind of a fun way to do it. But why not adults like us, right, Jeremy? So another way to view it. So on a serious note, this eclipse happens very infrequently. So the path of annularity, you'd have to be within that path that's allegedly some, well, if we look at the map here, we, we talk about the diameter of this band of the moon's shadow. And it can range as small as maybe 80 miles to about maybe a maximum up so maybe 130 miles. So if you're lucky enough to be in that shadow of the moon, you, of course, will get to see this entire annular eclipse. Go left or right, above it or below that line, you'll see less of a percentage. You'll see 70, 80%, the further you move away, naturally. And there'll be some places on the Earth where you'll hardly see any. But it's an interesting event. And what's really fascinating about this, if you look at locations on the Earth, and people ask me this question all the time, how often, if you stood in the same spot, would you necessarily see, and I'm talking more total solar eclipse than anything else here. In other words, what's the frequency duration of of a total solar eclipse if you stood in one location and waited? The answer comes out to approximately 350 to 375 years. So then fast forwarding to the event that's happening in Texas and all across the mid part of the United States up to the Northeast, the total solar eclipse of April 8th, as you were mentioning, 2024, that's really something not to miss. But let's not take the you know, steam and thunder out of the one coming up on Saturday. It's going to be a great event. I'm fortunate to be asked to come out to the Albuquerque International Balloon Fiesta, and they're taking it serious. I've never been to one of those. Have you? Have you been to one of those balloon no. fiestas? A, b- a balloon fiesta? What, do they fly balloons uh, and, and when this eclipse happens so they can get a better view or what? <laughs> they probably do, but they, what they have is it's so amazing. It's like you see maybe hundreds, maybe 800 balloons. They're all different shapes and sizes. They get out of a teapot. One of them, that's the coolest I've ever seen. It looked like it was like two or 300 feet long. It was like a, one of those high-speed motorcycles that people might have. And they had an actual rider 
and that whole balloon gets lofted into the sky. So they do these glows. So actually what's going to happen on Saturday, the 14th, where, by the way, the best part of that eclipse is coming to downtown Albuquerque. It's coming to a lot of the western states, as you mentioned, moving down through Texas, moving over the Gulf of Mexico, moving down into Central and South America. But that's going to be amazing because last year, if these are right statistics, I mean, I'm not guaranteeing this. I think I saw this on the web. I don't believe everything I read, nor should we. They had over 800,000 people attend this balloon fiesta, and it's really good. So I'm fortunate to be there. They've asked me to go and come on stage, talk to the people. They had representatives from other groups there, too. So we're all going to partake in this event. So I'm just hoping the listeners of your show, far and wide, get an opportunity to see this because I call it sacred geometry and it's really something fascinating and people can actually go up to our, you know, YouTube videos. We don't have a lot of them, but if they just Google up, excuse me, on YouTube, just check out and put it in the search bar there, Dr. Sky Eclipse, you'll get to see what we saw. If you've never seen what a ring of fire eclipse is, we were there in June of 2012 up at the Grand Canyon. And then we had our epic video, which we're so proud of, up in an area in Idaho, Rexburg, Idaho, where we saw this eclipse with about 500 people at a beautiful bed and breakfast. And that eclipse shows totality. So that hopefully gets the blood you know, going and people even get more excited about these events. And we're getting excited for the upcoming solar eclipses with Dr. Sky, Steve Cates, joining us tonight. Uh, perhaps you're in the path of annularity. Uh, it's going to be happening on Saturday morning for most people, afternoon for others. Uh, we're just beginning our conversation, a fascinating trip through space tonight with Dr. Sky. I'm Jeremy Scott. Into the paranormal. paranormal. Here comes the sun. We're talking about the solar eclipse this coming weekend with Dr. Sky. Steve Cates, my guest tonight on the show that's somewhere between paranormal and abnormal. I'm Jeremy Scott. So, uh, Steve, how long is this event going to last? I know that there are others that last longer. This, from all uh, accounts that I've seen, is going to be a, a rather quick one. Is that correct? Well, not necessarily. If you look at the beginning, they call it ingress, when you start to see the moon start to move across the disk of the sun. And then let's say you're in the path of annularity where you get to see that ring of fire. Then, of course, everything goes backwards as if we're moving backwards. That whole thing could be two and a half hours from start to finish. But the actual annularity, for those listening and looking for the you know, annular eclipse, the ring of fire, in its maximum phase, it'll be over five minutes of seeing that moon in that, you know, inside the ring of fire. So it's interesting. But other locations will have a shorter amount. But I'm just using Albuquerque as a, as a base standard. It has four minutes and 46 seconds. Now, the interesting part about these total solar eclipses is that's what you really want. You want to see, obviously, when the moon is covering the sun entirely. The maximum that a total solar eclipse can even last on the Earth, it may seem like a fleeting glimpse to many, is actually a long seven minutes and about 40 seconds or so. But this particular eclipse, now jumping to the one, the total one, in, in April of 2024, let's say you're in southern Texas. You're going to have to get to see high four minutes, almost five minutes of totality. 
The one that we saw up in Idaho in 2017 on August 21st, that only lasted a little over two and a half minutes if we were lucky. But I want to mention something, Jeremy, that I think is so important. Our sister company, because so many people ask me about the proper solar glasses, the problem I was talking about before to be brief about is that there's an ISO certification on these solar glasses that's necessary. And I'm not going to give this number right now, but people can look this up. Well, how do you know you have a fake solar glass from something that's real? And that was the controversy back in 2017. Because so many people had purchased from a big, large retailer, which I'm not going to mention. You could probably imagine. They had not necessarily their fault. They grabbed as many suppliers because the demand was so high. And a lot of people had imitation solar glasses. And why is this so important? It's obvious. I'm not an ophthalmologist. I try not to be one. But nobody normally stares at the sun for no good reason during a normal day. So we recommend this. If you're interested in getting these and learning more about these eclipses, the simple website is the letters TSE17, the number 17.com, TSE17.com. It's third four, and it stands for Total Solar Eclipse of 2017. And there, the viewer or visitor to that site will get the best information about what these are, how, how to procure them, and maybe it's a little late now for the next few days for this eclipse, but we really want to beef up and be prepared already, Jeremy. I think you probably know this, too, as an interesting person in this stuff. If you're going to see the total solar eclipse in April, people were booking these rooms there in locations and resorts two years ago and maybe more. And we're trying to find out, you know, we're just scouring around, looking on the Internet for different rooms for this. Not to say that it's not, you know, going to happen anymore, but you can't find a place. But they're getting, you know, even some of the hotels that are budget hotels are now getting $600 or $700 a night, just like it was a Super Bowl. So you're going to see millions of people along that eclipse path. Maybe not as many as this eclipse, but maybe I'm wrong, because people are interested in this, young and old. And so the question then is where? Where is the best spot to be? And we're going to find that out with uh, Steve Cates tonight, Dr. Sky, joining us to talk about the solar eclipses coming up. And uh, we've also got um, much more to talk about with him as well, including the solar cycle that is uh, off the charts, seemingly, and many other things space-related in our second hour of the program tonight. So stick with us. Somewhere between paranormal and abnormal, I'm Jeremy Scott. Into the paranormal. This is Paranormal News. Russia has sprung another leak at the International Space Station. The third coolant leak in less than a year occurred in a backup radiator on Monday, sending frozen flakes into space. Even though officials said crew members were not in danger, it raises additional concerns about the reliability of Russia's space program. This past February, a leak affected the Progress MS-21 cargo ship, and one last December occurred in a Soyuz MS-22 spacecraft. Meanwhile, Russia is proceeding with plans to build its own space station in the coming decade. George Henry, Paranormal News. 
In just a few days, the sun and moon will cross paths, creating a bright ring of fire in the sky. On October 14th, a rare celestial event will be visible, an annular solar eclipse, where most of the sun is covered by the moon. It's really cool. What's going to happen is the moon passes in between the Earth and the sun. Wow. Get ready to see a solar eclipse that won't happen again until 2046. It's called the Ring of Fire. The moon will not completely block out the sun, causing a ring effect. When the moon is just a bit further away from the Earth, it will block the sun, but not fully, making it look like a ring of fire. The rare celestial phenomenon gets its name from the fiery glow it creates around the edges of the moon. Paranormal. It's part paranormal and part abnormal. There's nothing ordinary about what's on your speakers. Into the Paranormal with Jeremy Scott. And my guest tonight is Dr. Steve Cates. We are talking about the upcoming solar eclipses. The Ring of Fire this Saturday, uh, you mentioned hard to get uh, a hotel room, not only for this eclipse, but the total solar eclipse happening next April. And so I'm, I have to ask, where are the best spots to see it? I'm in Oregon, and I know we have a pretty good chance of seeing it, but we've got listeners, of course, all across the country and perhaps in other, uh, other countries as well. So uh, where is the best place to see this weekend's annular solar eclipse, Dr. Sky? Well, Jeremy, weather-wise, we have to say areas, obviously, that have less precipitation. That's the easy answer. But where the maximum time duration where you'd see that moon right in the center with the ring of fire. It actually occurs down in Central America. I believe correctly. I'm not looking at a map here, but if you look at this, as you follow the eclipse path, it looks like it's somewhere around Panama or as we move down into South America. Now, that doesn't mean that other areas are not going to experience another interesting annual eclipse. As you mentioned correctly, this particular shadow of the moon starts off in the Pacific Ocean. They're a little bit higher than, say, Washington State, then maybe off the coast of Alaska. And then, interestingly enough, it you know, comes across to the coastal area of Oregon. Then it continues to track down. As we move from there, it moves across the top part of the state of Nevada. It actually has a little bit of California. I should, I should mention that. Very much the very far top right area of California, you get to see it. Not many cities right there, let's say. It's more in a rural area. But then it continues to move down, not only from Nevada into Utah, south of Salt Lake City. It touches the Four Corners area of Arizona. That's an interesting place to see it, not far from the fifth largest city in America, Phoenix, as we know, where I'm based. And then, interestingly enough, it kind of bisects almost right across the state of New Mexico. As you mentioned before, downtown Albuquerque, literally the maps that we've looked at, we would be at Balloon Fiesta literally just maybe 100 feet off of that center line, which is kind of rare and kind of cool, and then moves down over the illustrious city of Roswell. How about that? Roswell, New Mexico. Then moving into Texas and out off of there into the Gulf of Mexico. But how about this? If you happen to live in an area somewhere to the west of San Antonio, there's an area of Interstate 10 where this eclipse crosses, and interestingly enough, the April 8th eclipse actually bisects an area. So if you look at you're right in the middle of that X of the crosshair, and I don't have a map in front of me, but people can look this up, that is probably the luckiest place to be for anybody. Let's say somebody has a farm there, 
where they live in a home or they live in an apartment building if there happens to be a you know, dense population. You don't have to do much but come outside of the house in the fr- out of the front or back door and just sit back, relax, and observe this. And hopefully more people with telescopes and solar telescopes. Isn't that amazing? You get to see the cross of this eclipse. That's incredible. And there's also another region that happens in southern Illinois where the 2017 total solar eclipse crossed an area like Carbondale, Illinois, excuse me. This same eclipse in April of 2024 will cross the same field. And what did we say before? The frequency of these actually taking place in one location, 350 to 375 years. So wouldn't that be a lucky place to be if you could just set up shop there or live there? That's lucky. Is it rare that we get two eclipses, even though one's an annular and one's a partial lunar, uh, in the same month? Because after this Saturday, two weeks later, uh, there's another one. Yes, absolutely. And interestingly enough, the answer is it's not that rare at all. So when you see a solar-type eclipse, you can usually expect, as the solar and shows the lunar cycle changes, you would see another half of that cycle. You would see it, if it's a solar eclipse first, you'll probably see a lunar eclipse on the opposite side of that, of that, of the half of that lunar cycle. So it's not all that rare. But remember, as you mentioned correctly, and a lot of people didn't get this, that eclipse that happens at the end, the partial, on the 28th of October, not necessarily visible from the same hemisphere. So what's happening is the other side of the Earth is going to get a partial lunar eclipse. Not to say that that's not interesting, but right, Jeremy, nothing more fascinating than seeing the blood moon effect of these total lunar eclipses. And we've been pretty spoiled here in North America. We've had a number of these over the last four to five years. I imagine you've seen them. Many of the listeners have. But that's something that's really amazing. And the simple thing, I get the question all the time, hey, Dr. Sky, is that a safe eclipse to view without any kind of eye protection? Well, obviously it is because it's happening deep in the night and the opposite thing is happening. The moon is now moving into the shadow of the earth and thus when you get that totality, it turns into something fascinating. I've watched so many of these and I hope so many people out there have had the experience, not just from the science of it, Isn't that most incredible to see that beautiful sight in nature? It's just like amazing to see this incredible sacred geometry, as I like to call it. So is next April's eclipse going to be the same basic thing that happened in 2017? Correct, but not, of course, in the same location. And I should mention here, this gets a little technical, but I'll see to do my best to make this, you know, interesting enough for the listeners out there because it's a little bit complicated. Eclipses run in what they call Seros cycles. Now, what the heck is that? This is something that even the Greeks and the Romans had a good knowledge of. And I have to really say this in all sincerity here. This is amazing kind of calculation because even today with supercomputers, people go ahead and do these calculations and it comes up relatively easy. But imagine before you had no computer to be able to do this. So how did they do it? But the interesting part about this is these solar cycle, excuse me, these eclipse cycles happen in what's called seroses. They're like 18 years, some months, and days. There's a repetitive cycle of these eclipses that happen somewhere on the Earth. Now, I'm on this one. specifically about the solar annular eclipse on the 14th of October. It happens to be from an eclipse seros cycle called number 134. Now, if people just Google this, 
you'll see the details. This is the 44th eclipse of 71 eclipses in that cycle of Seros. Now, if this sounds confusing, well, it gets really interesting. It's not going to happen in the same location, but this Seros cycle started about the year 1248, and it'll continue to 2500. So there's this repetitive cycle, so they don't always appear in the same location. Now let's go back to total solar eclipses. If you miss this particular eclipse coming up on April 8th of 2024, there happens to be an eclipse that's going to happen here again in the area of the United States, just say south of of Salt Lake City, just above, let's say, Phoenix and moving south again. It almost kind of mimics what this eclipse looks like, but it's from a different solar cycle. And I believe that eclipse will happen in August of 2045. That's a total eclipse. So, you know, I'm 67. I had to do the math. You're a younger gentleman. Obviously, there's hopefully more time on the schedule for both of us. But the point is, there's so many of these eclipses. And if you really, really want to go and see the most magnificent eclipse anywhere in the world, come out this one. In August of 2027, there happens to be a total solar eclipse that arcs through the Mediterranean Sea, and it arcs down through Egypt, and guess what? It, it arcs itself just right near Luxor, the pyramids, the Valley of the Gods, this whole amazing... I've never been over there. Have you ever been over there to see the pyramids? No, I don't know. I'd love to. But could you imagine the excitement that's there with the great history from Egyptology, the mysteries of these pyramids, the sacred geometry there, of course, the whole new mysteries, I'm sure you've talked about it many times, from the paranormal side and from the science side, the mystery of these amazing pyramids and how they were built by people who were small of stature. I scratch my head every day and go, how the heck did they move those big stones? And I think, Jeremy, between you and I, we might agree that there might have been some otherworldly effect and help to maybe push those along. What say you? I think yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that, uh, Steve. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't I don't yes. think that it could have been done uh, mm-hmm. with uh, the tools and the manpower mm-hmm. and the resources that uh, existed back then. So in that absolutely. case, uh, there had to be some sort of influence. Didn't know we were going to talk about mm-hmm. that tonight, but uh, that's always cool <laughs> uh, when you talk oh, with Doctor yeah. Sky. Uh, you you really know uh, don't know wherever uh, or where we're going to head. So. Uh, explain uh, briefly here how each of these three are different from each other coming up. October 14th, October 28th, and then April 8th next year. Well, we're looking at an annular eclipse, as I mentioned before. The sun, the sun of course, at its relative size. As you see the moon too small because it's farthest away, it gives us the ring of fire effect, that whole ring of light that's around there. But now if we look at the one that's coming up here in April of 2024, that is when things, as they say, all hell breaks loose because this is an eclipse that's total. So the moon fits magically right over the sun, and that's an incredible experience. And I'm sorry, the one that you're referring to, the third one, which was what? I'm sorry. I the, one on the, 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 the one on the 28th, the uh, partial lunar eclipse. Oh, okay. Well, that one, you know, it doesn't, it pales by comparison. I'm going to rate these. If I was looking at, you know, giving it a rating, if it was like Dancing with the Stars, I would say that the annular eclipse coming up would probably be an eight and a half out of ten. The one that's the solar eclipse, in my opinion, I'll give it a nine, five, or a ten, but you have to have clear weather. But that lunar eclipse, not, not to dismiss or you know, take away you know, anything from the moon, 
it's just a partial eclipse. It looks interesting, but it's nothing. I'd give that like a four and a five out of 10. But the exciting part is, for those people out there, and I'm sure there's plenty of them in your listening audience, as you know better, fascinating things to see in the sky, things that you do not normally see. And again, kudos to you and all the other types of programs that center on this material where the mainstream you know, media really doesn't spend the time, in my opinion. Well, I can only all the fun. imagine what some people might see, just the sole fact that they're looking up, that they're looking at the sky, instead of looking mm-hmm. down at their dang smartphone. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I've got one quick story, if we have time, that makes eclipses to talk about the legacy absolutely. of the eclipses that are total. How about this? Look up July 29th, 1857. What the heck was that? A total solar eclipse occurred across North America. It went through areas that came down from, say, Alaska. It hit the United States. It went through the states of Wyoming. It went downtown Denver, Colorado. And it moved into the Dallas area in Texas. Now, here's something sad to report about eclipses. And this is, you know, I'll be gentle on this because it's a little graphic. We find out through history that at that particular eclipse, and there's a lot of good science to talk about, but we'll, we'll get the bad part out first. How many people in that particular time, and there's probably people on the earth still that fear the sun god or fear something, you know, we talk about with all the problems going on in the world today. I've got that today on different programs. Hey, Dr. Sky, you know, there's an eclipse coming. Look at what's happening in the Middle East. Is all this connected? You know, I don't know. But I can tell you with fact, with, with accuracy, that at that eclipse, July 29th, 1857. When that eclipse was visible in Dallas, there was a religious group, extremely conservative and very religious, that believed that the end times were coming. And we've heard many people talk about that, you know, from the book of Revelations, and some people made predictions. And this one pastor made the prediction and said that he knew that something would happen at this eclipse, and it was the end of the world. So what he did, very sadly, and I'll be, you know, gentle on this, he went out and got an axe and he got a sharp knife, and he went over to his son at the time of totality. This is morbid. He split his skull open with the axe, and he split his throat, the, the, the preacher, on the fact that this is the end of times and we need to all repent. So isn't that a sad way to go out? And people believe this kind of thing, that there was some connection there. I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't talk about those kind of things. I yeah, don't so know this is a, not a sign of the end times. Uh, the solar eclipse or the annular eclipse uh, this weekend. Keep that in mind. Uh, it it will only last, and uh, this too shall pass. More to come with Dr. Sky. I'm Jeremy Scott, somewhere between the paranormal and abnormal. Into the paranormal. I'm Jeremy Scott. The planet is not on fire. That's just the ring of fire. Part of the annular solar eclipse coming up this Saturday. I'm Jeremy Scott. Our guest tonight is Dr. Sky, Steve Cates. There's a couple of interesting things that are happening with the upcoming eclipses. One of them is a NASA-funded project where they're going to send rockets 
into the shadow of the eclipse. Another one, they're using a retired telescope uh, to point that at the sun. I mean, these opportunities uh, being eclipses do provide quite a lot for researchers as far as evidence, right? Absolutely, and it's a very interesting thing. As you take a, you know, not a defunct telescope, but something to take a look at the sun, you know, you can never get enough data and information. But I've seen sounding rockets at other eclipses, and we go back to many. We've seen many total solar eclipses, at least my time in travel. We were up in northern Canada in 1972, July, I believe it was July 10th. And we watched this total solar eclipse, albeit through, you know, cloudy skies and thunderstorms on the horizon. But as we were looking around, we saw sounding rockets going up to actually make some experiments. I mean, whether they had cameras in them or they were just trying to test the temperature and density of the atmosphere, that was quite fascinating. But Jeremy, if I may, I know quickly time may be running out. Since I had a rather depressing story about the eclipse, let me give a little bit of historical you know, a focus on something about that same eclipse on July 29, 1857. A young Thomas Alva Edison actually journeyed west on a train. In those days, they didn't have the ability, of course, to fly there. But he went out to a place called Rawlings, Wyoming. And he and a bunch of other scientists, you know, the prestigious scientists that, you know, were the big professors of astronomy at the time, were out there to study the sun. And they were interested to find what they thought was an object called the planet Vulcan in between Mercury and the sun. And there was some speculation that they actually found something during the eclipse. But more interesting than that, young Thomas Edison goes out to this eclipse. He just had a whole great time doing this, but he brought with him a little device called a tessimeter. And what the heck is that? It was a device among his many creations and inventions. He brought this device where he was looking to see if he could measure the temperature of stars and the temperature of the sun's outer atmosphere, which is not a breathable one, of course, it's called a solar corona. So he went and did this big test, and the winds kicked up on the day of the eclipse, and he got some data. But isn't that fascinating that we, we look at the history of what Thomas Edison did as far as inventions, the great genius of Menlo Park. This is quite, quite fascinating that these eclipses have been seared into our minds to research. I mean, there's so many stories we could talk about that and lunar eclipses. And what happened, of course, maybe for another show with Christopher Columbus and how he tricked the indigenous people of the areas that he visited on his many four trips across the ocean. But these people knew a lot about the sky. How did they calculate this for these exactitudes and eclipse dates and times? But going on to Thomas Edison briefly and closing on him, I find that fascinating. I, I just love the history and, and lore of these eclipses and how many people have come before us to see it. Millions of people are in the path of this annular eclipse. Just do it safely. And obviously the TSC17, you know, .com website will help you and guide you. If you're ever interested, people out there listening, in acquiring the right solar protection. Maybe not for this eclipse if there's not time, but of course for the big one coming up in 2024. And if you were to study the sun, you would, you would want to study it when it's the most active. And uh, that time seems to be now. It is. Absolutely. You know, we're going through, as you mentioned accurately, the period of time where we're zooming toward the peak of this solar cycle 25. But what's interesting about it, Jeremy, and many people may know this, is that it's much more active than what solar cycle 24 was. And what's happening in a more localized area on the sun, it's now almost going to happen. Uh, well, what does that mean? Almost going to happen. It means soon it will happen that the sun's polarity will shift. 
Now, that's not as you know, nefarious as if when it happens on the Earth, like every 300,000 years or so. But that happens on the sun during these solar cycles. But we could talk forever about that. I mean, I observe the sun regularly with, you know, decent solar telescopes, the ones that have the filters built into them. Why? Because it's always been a passion of myself, even going back to high school, of drawing the sun every single day, you know, providing data to scientists about the numbers of sunspots. It's just fascinating. And we'll continue this fascinating conversation with uh, Dr. Sky, Steve Cates. The solar eclipse coming this weekend. Here comes the sun. And uh, we've got the solar flares and CMEs intensifying as well. More space talk coming up with Dr. Sky. Miss a show? Into the Paranormal is free on all the top podcast apps. is called Here Comes the Sun for a reason. We have uh, been reporting for the last year, it seems, about the acceleration of solar cycle 25. This is an 11-year cycle. And since the records have been kept, it is one of the uh, most uh, intense cycles that there have been, in fact, It is believed to uh, be actually ahead of schedule, which means the peak or the solar maximum will happen uh, before the predicted date, which was somewhere around 2025. Now they're saying 2024 is a possibility. And we've been hearing about a lot about the X-class solar flares, which are the largest of their kind, and about coronal mass ejections about uh, space weather fouling things up, Uh, space junk as well. And we're going to cover all of that here on our second hour with Dr. Sky. So what is it about this uh, current solar cycle that uh, is catching all the attention, Dr. Sky? Well, Jeremy, this is interesting. If you look and compare it to Solar Cycle 24, obviously this one's way ahead of where they thought it would be. That is the you know physicists, the astrophysicists, and the regular observers of the sun. We're seeing more intense solar flares, a higher frequency of these CMEs, coronal mass ejections. But let me stop and go backwards, because when we have a solar flare event, let's talk about the reasons, the dynamics of how this happens. We see these splotches on the photosphere. That's that orangey disc when you use those solar glasses that we see. What's the sun? We all know. It's a giant fusion reactor. And every second, imagine if, Jeremy, if we got the bill for the amount of hydrogen that was used 
maybe let's say 780 million tons of hydrogen transmuted into by this incredible process called fusion into about 740 million tons of helium every second. Could you imagine if we got that bill? Wow. Like we're sitting in this taxi and we see the meter running. It's just insane. But what's happened, what happens is when you see these splotches on the sun, these are sunspots. Galileo was one of the first to, and of course he didn't follow, well, there was no real advice in those days. He actually damaged his eyes by looking at the sun. They would take a flame and put a, you know, a objective, like a lens over it and try to darken it to use that as a solar filter, crude as it was. But he had a lot to say about sunspots. So what are they? They're cooler than the photosphere. The photosphere temperature is around 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Incredible. The nuclear core in the sun may be 35 million degrees Fahrenheit, but that's never been proven. It's all done in you know, theoretical physics. So these sunspots are cooler. They're depressions in the sun, if you want to call it, but it's not a surface that's solid. So when a lot of these sunspots, you see them, if you go to a website like what, spaceweather.com, they, they seem to lead the charge and talking about the effects of these things on the Earth, thus space weather. So you see all these sunspot groups. They, they peak every 11 and a half or 11, 12 years, and they go to minimum. Now, what happens? Let's talk about the dynamics. You see these sunspot groups, large chains of sunspots. These magnetic fields, if you take your fingers and spread them apart and interlace them between each other in front of your eyes, then magically just snap them, don't break your fingers, and then move your fingers apart, this is what happens on the surface of that cloud top of the sun, that's right. So large magnetic energy is released hundreds of million times more than, say, hydrogen bombs. Imagine if you could harness this energy safely, not to happen anytime soon. But that's what happens, and a flare effect takes place. So it light travels, we know how fast. So when you sit outside and you see the sun, and let's say you're sunbathing, or we're just sitting out doing solar observations like an eclipse, the light is eight minutes or eight and a half minutes old. So a flare, once it happens on the photosphere of the sun, zooms across that short distance, one astronomical unit, 93 million miles. It takes eight, eight and a half minutes to get here. That energy is dangerous, okay? It can blind satellites in space, but the real problem becomes and comes later. This is called a coronal mass ejection. It's photonic material shooting up from that flare event, and it takes about 15 to 17 hours to actually come toward the Earth. Let's say it's a direct blow. If you look at the center of the sun, and that sunspot flared, and now this big massive event is coming toward us, say, 15 hours later. That's like a shotgun. You're right in the path of the blast. You don't want to be there. So the Earth gets hit with this big blast of photons and you know, particles, protons, I should say. So that's what happens there. So what's seeing now? We're seeing a lot more of these. We're seeing coronal mass ejections. Even how about this? On the far side of the sun, that there was one, I don't know the exact date, but it was within this year, I'm sure. One of the solar satellites detected a large CME on the far side of the sun. And it was an even more magnanimous blast that came out, which would have went the other way, you would have thought, the opposite direction. But it creeped around the edges of the sun. And what happens when that hits, the, those energies hit the Earth? We see the excitation of the ionosphere. You'll see aurora borealis. You'll see a lot of other things happen. But we've got to go to the great event, which everybody has known about, or well, maybe some people are hearing it for the first time, the Carrington event in September of 1859. The astronomer Richard Carrington is literally observing a white light flare. Out of the blue, this giant sunspot, massive sunspot on the sun, flares up. 
Well, in the days before we had this great, you know, technology, electronic internet, and all these electronic digital things, the analog internet was the telegraph. So hours later, maybe 15 or 14, 15 hours later, people working with the telegraph along railroad, state, you know, railroad lines, telegraph lines actually went on fire. And people got shocked from this blast from the sun. And that was the days before we were so, what? So, you know, enamored with all this digital technology. So what we're seeing is more of these CMAs may be more intense, but interestingly enough, we haven't had any massive, massive X flares out of this cycle yet. If you go back to the great Halloween storm, I believe it was like 2003 or 2004, allegedly there was a flare that blasted off the sun on the X scale, maybe up to 45 on the X scale, which is like off the charts. It's like if you're in your car and you see your tachometer, or like me, I ride a motorcycle too, you know, one of those kind of fast ones. My tachometer goes to 16,000 RPM. No, I'm not stupid enough to do that. But if you then peg that, you know, that tachometer, it'd be like the same thing. The energy is off the scale on some of these. And since what? I need not remind you and your listeners, we live in this digital world where the effects of these can be felt far and wide. And let's just hope and pray heavily that we don't get blasted with a massive CME. But people say it may happen. But the sunspot cycle is higher than what was predicted, more intense. Okay, Steve, I got to ask, how fast do you go on your motorcycle? Well, this is a what? Is it a family show? Or I mean, I guess it is. It's a show for everybody. But, well, here it is. On the freeways here in Arizona, I guess I'm going to have to go to court on this if anybody could prove it. But I'm in the HOV lane, and I'm doing 70 you know, miles an hour, 65, 70. And I stay in the HOV lane because that's where motorcycles are allowed here in Arizona. Well, all of a sudden, I'm riding along, and somebody's up my tailpipe, and they must be doing 90. So I'm trying to get over, and I can't because the lane next to me is filled with vehicles. So I'm trying to speed up. So I'm up to 90. And then mm, maybe a triple digit, but albeit for a second or two. But I better slow down because and it's not my fault, but it's still not legal. I know that. So I just admitted and incriminated myself on your show. <laughs> <laughs> but I do ride a nice motorcycle. It's a Yamaha FZ1, if anybody knows what they are. It's a leader bike. And uh, like I said, I, I don't know. I like it, but I'd probably like to go into something more like one of those BMW 1200s, you know, with those big boxes. They look like ice cream. You put ice cream things in there, like freezer boxes. Or do they make those you feel cool safe? Ones. It makes you feel safer or well, what? No, I think you'd have the ability to go on, like, like for instance, I'm up here in an undisclosed location in the Arizona mountains with right. a beautiful house. But here it is. I could take that motorcycle, not the one I have, and ride it on what they call these fire roads. And people who know that, you know, you could go off the trail, but it's not like riding a, uh, a dirt bike. No, because my brother does that. And no, I'm not getting on a dirt bike. No thanks. All right. Well, uh, back to all things space, uh, <laughs> there, there's been a lot of talk about the moon uh, lately mm -hmm. as well. Uh, Russia just had an event where one of their landers, the Luna 25, crashed mm -hmm. at the sure. moon. Uh, India, after a unsuccessful first try, finally did land on the moon. Uh, Japan's got this mission, the SLIM, S-L-I-M, uh, the U.S., of course, is returning to the moon with Artemis, 
Uh, it's the Artemis mm-hmm. three yes. mission that is going to put a radio telescope on the moon. Uh, that's planned to launch in 2025. And so we are seemingly in this race, uh, a, a race to what get to the moon and, and start to stake our turf. Well, yes. I mean, it's a little more complicated than this because let's go back to Artemis. Now we see the Chandrayaan-3, the Indians. Great success. Congratulations. They land a spacecraft, and out comes a little rover. Magic not. It's a lot of hard work. They had the Chandrayaan-2 that didn't do this. It was a failure. They gave it a good try. But to be very accurate about landing in that part of the moon, let's talk about this. Artemis is looking to land in that Aiken, Aiken Basin in an area that's literally at the south pole of the moon. And a correction needs to be made because many people were reporting that Chandrayaan-3 actually landed at the south pole of the moon. That's pretty much incorrect, but why split hairs? They landed at about 67 degrees south latitude, not 90. But why are we giving them so much credit? Because it's so difficult to land in an area like that of the moon that's basically cratered and pockmarked like you can imagine. It's just incredible. So they had great success doing this. It landed in an area that had some flat area. Out comes the little, you know, the little rover. And just to prove that the spacecraft wasn't done yet, it actually turned itself off and the rover for a while to save batteries, fired itself up. The lander jumped up, you know, propelled itself up about 12 inches, moved sideways to get closer to the rover. But what's interesting about this, Jeremy, is that if you were on the surface of the moon, People need to know this. A lunar day is 14 Earth days long. So if you look at this whole thing, what happened to this spacecraft? It was in this dormant period. Temperatures are so cold down there. And I've had this kind of conversation with people about where is the coldest place in the solar system? And people said, when Pluto was a planet, way out there by Pluto, Neptune, Uranus, actually the south pole of the moon has checked in as having the coldest measured temperature. So the problem going to the moon, if we're going to take humans there, I think it's going to take a lot longer than this 2025, and here's why. Already the Artemis program is over budget. The Office of Management and Budget is doing a review. They do like, you know, they're auditing themselves with NASA, and they're saying you're over, you know, we can't sustain this kind of, uh, you know, spending. So they're either going to have to cut back, make some changes. They're doing a great job. You know, but the best of all, no doubt about it, is uh, Elon with SpaceX. All right. Will we actually get there? Uh, more with Dr. Sky to come uh, talking about the race to the moon. I'm Jeremy Scott. We'll be back after this. Into the paranormal. paranormal. Jeremy Scott into the paranormal. No matter whether we were there or we weren't, there seems to be an urgency to get back there or to the moon. We're talking with Dr. Sky tonight. Several countries uh, have either succeeded or in the process of headed there. And of course, the U.S. has the Artemis mission. And uh, we were talking about how this thing it almost seems destined for failure. Well, it's interesting, Jeremy. I mean, we wish them just the opposite, but 
The problematic thing here is it's not so easy to have humans on the surface of the moon. Let's go back to the Apollo days, and this is really interesting. For many people out there, and I still come across people all the time, and maybe you do too, that doubt the existence, you know, or, or, or attempt to go to the moon. We never did it. Of course, it, so. yes. Right. But here, you know, we, we don't want to debate that here. I mean, this is not the point. But what I'm saying to you is on the surface of the moon, as we know it from the Apollo landers, I had this conversation with Edgar Mitchell once. And obviously he and Alan Shepard went to the surface of the moon with Apollo 14. And I said, you know, you landed in an area called Framoro, kind of the highlands of the moon. You snuck in between, let's say, two big massive mountains. And they did it successfully. So I said, when you're on the surface of the moon, I said, you landed as if it would be early morning with the sun, let's say. I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but let's say it was like 25, 30 degrees in elevation. And he said, there's a reason for that. They wanted the best topography shadows that they could probably get for their, you know, pictures. But more interesting is that surface of the moon at that time, the temperature was still survivable, even with their spacesuits on. But when you get to high noon on the, on the sun, remember I just mentioned, a lunar day is 14 Earth days long. So how do you exist on the surface of the moon when the sun is high up and the temperatures zoom up to, say, 230, 240 degrees Fahrenheit? So obviously... When we saw these landers, you know, go to the surface of the moon, at least on television or other pictures, they went with a low sun angle. So there's a lot of issues that you have to deal with, and including the extreme cold that you'd have at the south pole of the moon. But why the south pole of the moon? So many in the science community in the know are saying if you could go to these specific craters at the pole of the moon, there happens to be a few in which you'd have to land inside the crater, but the ring above it, with the edges of that crater, it's always, there's always sunlight up at that you know, higher area where the peaks are. So you could set up a base, not to have to worry too much about the heat of the sun. You could bring maybe thermonuclear types of you know, generators to the moon, set up a moon base, and utilize permanent you know, sunlight and beam it down into the lower location where you could have a habitation module. So the problem is getting there, and then the other problem is, how do you get all that heavy material boosted off the Earth? You know, Elon has it right with his big, you know, fancy rocket, the big giant one that didn't, you know, quite make it the first time around, Starship. This is interesting. So you have to get the payloads into space. And they're looking to build a gateway space station around the moon. I mean, I'm jumping fast forward. That's good because it's a way station where you might be able to at least attach modules with equipment on them and then lower them to the surface of the moon. So bottom line, without going too far into this, I think it's going to take us a little bit longer to actually have a lunar habitation module or have astronauts. You could go there just like they did with Apollo, albeit briefly, but to stay on the moon, I think this is at least another decade or more away, and that's probably rushing it. That's my opinion. And we'll have more of our conversation. Love Talking Space with Dr. Sky. Asteroids have been in the news, of course, late with the return of the OSIRIS-REx mission. And uh, later this week, the Psyche mission. More to come. I'm Jeremy Scott. Somewhere between paranormal and abnormal. 503-506-0396. The number in North America. That's the United States and Canada. 503-506-0396. Or Skype callers internationally at ITP51. Into the Parabnormal, I'm Jeremy Scott.
This is Paranormal News. New research has found that severe weather in space is disrupting the navigational skills of birds during long migrations. Birds use magnetic fields to navigate at night, and events such as solar flares can throw them off course. The area between North Dakota and Texas is a major migratory corridor. Researchers at the University of Michigan discovered that migration in this region decreases by 9 to 17 percent during severe space weather events and increases rates of birds becoming lost. Solar outbursts can also throw off humans by disrupting satellite communications, navigation systems, and power grids. We can expect more of these events as the sun reaches its peak of the current solar cycle. George Henry, Paranormal News. sunspots and coronal mass injections has increased. Satellites are going to have a huge problem when dealing with some of these larger solar flares. Russia's first lunar mission in nearly 50 years has ended in failure after its spacecraft crashed into the moon. India is now on the moon. It's been more than a half century since astronauts journeyed to the moon. Well, folks, that's about to change. It's the first U.S. mission from the, to return samples from an asteroid. My job is to propel the Psyche spacecraft to a metal-rich asteroid. The federal government is cracking down on interstellar litter bugs who hail from this planet. So as we launch more and more satellites, there's going to be more and more chances of collision. It's going to cause even more pieces of... Into the paranormal. I'm Jeremy Scott. A fascinating world in which we live in, especially when you think outside the box about everything out there beneath and beyond the stars. Talking with uh, Dr. Sky tonight, Steve Cates. Fascinating conversation so far uh, as we talk about. Uh, asteroids next, specifically the OSIRIS-REx mission. Apparently, there's supposed to be a big reveal. So this thing came and went seven years, brought back a sample. I know they've been teasing some stuff over the past couple of weeks, but I, I guess tomorrow's the day, Steve. Well, it's very interesting. I mean, if you look at the OSIRIS-REx mission, it's probably something that maybe shouldn't have happened, but the great engineers and technology, why do I say that, made it happen. Because this particular spacecraft made a very strange orbit around the sun, moving around the planets, then moving out, of course, to this particular asteroid, Bennu. And as it was going over the surface of this very, very low gravity pull asteroid, in other words, if you stood on that asteroid, or I did, you know, with whatever our weights are measured, we would just jump up and we might be able to just push ourselves off the asteroid. So the spacecraft comes over the top, this OSIRIS-REx, and it opens up this little scooper that looks like something you'd use as a dustpan with a door on it. And it goes down and tries to scoop up and got stuck. The actual door kind of got stuck, so it jiggled it around. The Earth is now some 250 grams heavier than what it was when this particular spacecraft pushed off the probe. That took a year or so to get back to the Earth a little more. Lands, of course, safely, which is totally amazing, go figure. You know, traveling at 20-some thousand miles an hour, landing in the Utah desert, and they open this up. It's going to look at 
what is the constitution of what's inside, what makes up these asteroids? Because if you think back in time, asteroids are probably one of the most amazing relics of the creation of the solar system. We all know from basic science, the basic asteroidal belt lies between Mars and Jupiter, but there's so many more asteroids that lie out beyond that. And one of the great theories is, you know, that people think, where did life come from? I mean, not to get into the conversation Bible or talk about other things, you know, knock any religious or any religious beliefs, but from science, many people say the concept of panspermia, meaning that the solar system or the universe is populated by DNA and organic molecules that come from comets and or asteroids. So we're going to see what's the constituency, what, what are these things made of, and what kind of organic compounds are in there. And then the other bizarre mission, which has been long in coming, is the Psyche asteroid mission that, what, I think it says October 12th. Am I correct, Jeremy, that the relaunch date is just what? Right Thursday. around the corner now. Thursday, yeah, absolutely. And this is interesting because if you look at this asteroid, it's like, if you look at when it was discovered you know, a long time ago, and it's still, that baffles my mind, how these astronomers with telescopes and no real computers physically looked into the sky and measured star patterns in the field of a telescope. And they had to wait hours or days to see if anything moved, and then to do some computational thing of how these objects move around the sun. This psych asteroid is so unique in the fact that many asteroids are like rubble piles, like we talked about Benna. But in this case, Psyche may be this metallic core of a non-existent planet, I mean, a planetary object that existed that somehow, you know, evolved and not evolved, but that's what it is. Now, for those out there that are looking to be entrepreneurs, maybe other than Elon Musk, maybe he's got his fingers in this, who knows, rightfully so, that maybe one of the next great mining adventures in the solar system might be mining asteroids. So people put this calculation together. It's kind of bizarre. It says Psyche may be worth as much as $10 quadrillion, and that's 90 times the world's entire $110 trillion economy. If you could, the problem is, how do you get the asteroid, well, where it is? Even if it comes near the Earth, how do you mine it? But what's in it? It could be diamonds, gold, precious metals, all kinds of things that we need. Rare Earth elements. You know, when people talk about China seemingly going around the world and securing and snatching up all the locations for these rare Earth elements that they use in electronics, who knows? But we wish them well. Hopefully the spacecraft will arrive, not necessarily in a week or two, but we're looking probably sometime around 2025 to actually start imaging and understanding where did Psyche come from? Is it the core, a metal core of an ancient planet? Or what holds, what mysteries are below the surface of that object? That's fascinating. And that's the first time we've ever done uh, so with a, a metal object, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, this one, according to the, I mean, nobody knows for sure as far as really the constituents, but they say from all their observational techniques, you know, the spectrographs, when they measure what they see in the light patterns, yeah, this one looks like uh, pretty much metal all the way, and it'll be fascinating to find out what they come up with. So how much of a threat really are asteroids to Earth? Uh, do we stand a chance of one of them uh, ever getting close enough to us to cause real damage? No, absolutely. No, absolutely, and not to alarm your listeners, but the, the point of the matter is they measure these asteroidal close calls, near-Earth asteroids, potentially hazardous asteroids, on this Torino scale. And at a science scale, it measures the probability of its close, you know, encounter, when and when it could possibly hit. 
We have nothing, and this is good news, we have nothing that's coming right down the pike right today that we know of that we have orbital elements on. But if you look at this asteroid called Apophis, Apophis, however you pronounce it, the Egyptian war god it's named after, this encounter with the Earth as it's going to take place in April, uh, I think it's like April 13th or 15th of 2029, and once again, in I believe a period of 2027, or 2037, excuse me, around the same period of time in the calendar month of April, we tell people, of course, file your taxes early, and just trying to be a little humorous, of course, but this particular object, Apophis, will skim close to the Earth and get within, how about this, within the orbital pattern of the geosynchronous satellites that are out there, which is some 22,000 miles in space. And then, <laughs> here's the interesting part, if that particular asteroid snuggles up to a mathematical point in the Earth's orbit, it's called a keyhole, it's a gravity keyhole. What's that? It's like not a black hole. But if it moves into that gravity keyhole, it could alter the asteroidal orbit again, and when it returns again, I've got to be careful because I don't know, and when I don't know, I'll be honest, I don't think anybody knows, it's not scheduled to hit the Earth, but calculations that were done by some astronomers, say, with a big C on the could, there could be an impact in the future of uh, this asteroid above us. But that's not the one that I really worry about or at all. I don't really worry about that at all. The one that you have to be concerned about is the asteroid body that sneaks up from the behind-the-sun position. So like when you see the sun in the sky, it's the object that will come from that area where you're not really able to see a telescopic image because it's literally coming and sneaking up from behind us, if you want to call it, or directly to us. And that has happened before. But interestingly enough, there's been a number of impacts on the Earth of small bodies, and I'm talking about objects that are maybe like two, three feet across, maybe even smaller. And one of the most amazing things for astronomers today is that they've actually calculated, there was one, I think, maybe what, within this year or last year, where the astronomers said, we found this object, and we know it's coming toward the Earth, but we found it only 12 hours ago. And lo and behold, one of their predictions was that it would actually come across the sky, I believe it was like near Paris, France, or London, and they gave the exact time that the object would come in. So they're getting better and better at this. But the problematic thing is those objects that sneak up us on us from behind the sun or in that direction, who knows? But let's hope we're in better luck and not in the shooting gallery. Yeah, and, and our planetary defense is another thing that has uh, uh, been in the news, uh, well, in the last mm -hmm. uh, you know year or so, people have been sure. wondering about, uh, you know, if the... Uh, what was it, the double double asteroid redirection test? Yes, the DART mission. Yeah, the DART mission is fascinating. And do we have time to explain a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, no. The DART mission was even more interesting because it looked at this binary asteroid. Now, binary asteroids were once thought to be the rarest of everything. You know, they're totally rare. But we're finding more of these. And they selected an object to impact an asteroidal body called Dimorphos and Didymus. And what they wanted to do is the little, the smaller object that orbits around the other little asteroid, that's, that's strange how they stay together. This object that we intentionally slammed into, it's called a kinetic type of an impactor. It's not an explosive device, but it's like a heavy metal object, like a hammer, let's say, that's flying through space. And that's a bad example because it was heavier than that. It actually impacted the asteroid, and they wanted to see if they could 
by impacting that small little dimorphos, see if it would have an orbital change from its primary little spot, you know, the, the primary asteroid of the binary system, and see what would happen if it could actually nudge it out of the way. Well, people say, why are you doing that? Well, on a larger scale, for a larger kinetic impactor, who knows, maybe the size of a city, who knows? If an asteroid were getting that close, do we even have a chance of deflecting an asteroid? So the results from DART say, yes, it does work, but who's going to build an impactor the size of a city to move an asteroid that's maybe miles across? We have a lot of thinking to do, but it seemingly worked, the impactor. Yeah, and so it was successful. It basically did change the trajectory mm-hmm. of yes, this body, uh, and you don't mm-hmm. need to really alter it too much, uh, just no. away from wherever you think it may land. If it's going to land you know, around a, uh, a populated area, you might just deflect it mm-hmm. a little bit to send it somewhere else. Right, but the most ridiculous idea, and some people were serious about this, is if you have an asteroid, one way to move it out of the way is to direct hit it with, like, say, the Tsar Bomba, like the largest nuclear explosive device on Earth. The Russians detonated this back in 1960, I believe, maybe allegedly 100 megatons. Well, if you would hit an object with a nuclear device, obviously that would do a shotgun type effect, and now you have a bigger problem, in my opinion, and other smart people, or smarter people than myself, of course, that would say, why would you break up something like that? Is it better to be hit by one thing or be hit by like thousands of things, which could be still damaging and still large? It's probably one of the worst ideas I've ever heard, but well, not everybody agrees with me. You know, and speaking of breaking things up, uh, it seems like space junk is getting uh, to be more and more of a problem. Uh, the mm-hmm. first fine uh, for space junk uh, has been yes. issued. There's talk of you know, needing rules and regulations, uh, assigning parking spaces uh, in space. Uh, Boy, uh, is this space junk problem getting out of control? I think it is. And kudos to Elon Musk with space, you know, doing his SpaceX Starlink. But there's also Jeff Bezos who's doing his Kuiper project. I think we're going to be seeing a time when, well, the astronomers are upset because a lot of these things interfere with their deep space, you know, imaging. But let's talk for a second about this particular issue with the FCC. The FCC issues its first fine under its anti-space debris rule. What's that? Well, they're doing this on a satellite called Echo Star 7, which was deactivated back in May of 2022. So I didn't know the FCC was involved in doing that. I would think it's the FAA, but, well, that's confusing. Well, so I guess because it's a, uh, it's, a, it's transmitting a signal, I guess, is why yes. oh, it, it's in their purview. Right. So it could be in both purviews, but they issue a $150,000 fine. And the reason they do it is now it's a defunct satellite, but they were issuing an order, I believe, a rule or whatever, to move it to a higher orbit. So they wanted to see it move to an orbit of 186 miles above the surface of the Earth. but it only went to 75 miles, and thus the problematic thing is if it's defunct, now we got it in the path potentially of other spacecraft. So to answer your question, yes, space junk is a real prevalent problem. <laughs> We're going to need parking attendants up there. It's going to be like the Jetsons uh, with assigned parking. More to come. We'll wrap up our broadcast tonight into the pair of normal. Into the pair of
Annular solar eclipse this weekend, Saturday morning Pacific Coast time at about 9.16 a.m. That's 10.16 Mountain, 11.16 Central, 12.16 Eastern. The annular solar eclipse. It's been a fascinating program tonight. I know I've used that word a couple of times because I believe it to be accurate uh, descriptor for our conversation tonight with uh, Dr. Dr. Sky. Steve Cates back after five years. Good to have him here on the program. Uh, not by any fault of, of his or mine. It, things just happen to work out that way. But boy, we found a lot of subjects that we could discuss tonight. And we were talking about you know, space junk. And uh, when you have these collisions, whether it's an old satellite or uh, anything that has been decommissioned and is no longer in use but is just kind of floating there in space, it may begin to deteriorate and fall apart. Uh, If there is a collision, uh, you've got parts literally spraying through space, and uh, that not only damages, uh, uh, poses a a potential danger to satellites and communication devices, uh, whatever these companies um, are are putting into space, but also astronauts as well. Absolutely. So this is something we have to pay attention to because there is a problem. And again, not to overly emphasize the astronomy side of the world, you know, there's need for better telecommunication. I think Elon Musk has done a great job with his platforms, and I think Jeff Bezos will do the same with this type of project. But from the astronomer's side, as we close out your show, we find out that they do have a valid concern. If you have so many particles or material up in space, these spacecraft, they are actually, in many cases, interfering with the time exposures or long exposures that some of the observatories are doing with ground-based telescopes. And then some argument goes, why don't you build more space telescopes way out there, like the James Webb Telescope? Well, we obviously still have a need for the ground-based telescopes in some of the driest and clearest places on Earth. It's an amazing mass of telescopes in the Atacama Desert in Chile, in which we have still the most tranquil skies, the darkest of skies. But the astronomers do have a point, I believe, Jeremy, that they do have to have some sort of a window in which you can shoot pictures or images with these giant megapixel cameras and not have them be disturbed or, as we say, photobombed with spacecraft. But how do you have a balance in this? And Elon Musk has tried very hard to darken his satellites. They have actually done something to make them not as prevalent. So maybe we need to start talking about all these things, space junk, the necessity for the astronomers to be able to do research, and continuing what to expand people's minds like we're doing here on your show. And it's always an honor to be uh, talking with people like yourself and sharing information. Likewise. So how do we regulate this stuff, uh, the space junk? Is is finding uh, our answer? Well, it might be, but I think a slap on the wrist may not do it. There's also talk, and I know some companies in the private sector are actually building, or maybe there's even a few up in orbit, I don't know for sure, of these so-called vacuum system in the heavens and in low Earth orbit. Because that would, of course, suck up a lot of material that's floating around out there. Because think about this. Even that little tiny fleck of paint, a little speck, they say, traveling 17,000 miles an hour, could cause serious damage to a spacewalker out there penetrating their suit. And even, you know, that obviously is a big concern. So we need something up there 
I don't necessarily think fines are the answer. I think we can all figure this out. But I think they're going to have, in short order, some kind of space, uh, you know, trucks or vehicles up in space that can actually pull away like a small towing company and dispose of these satellites properly, which might even mean sending them into the sun, which the sun will eat those up in no time. And it's, I don't think anybody would argue with that as long as it doesn't come raining down on us. If uh, folks want to uh, hear more from Dr. Sky, where do they go? My suggestion is our platform is WABC in New York. That is Talk Radio 77, WABC. Proud to be there. Hello, Frank Astronomy correspondent. And there you go. Great Frank, and we do a show with Frank. But anyway, go to WABCradio.com for the Dr. Sky experience. And I do appreciate being on your show, Jeremy, and look forward to our next encounter in our next conversation. Me as well. Dr. Sky, best to you. Enjoy the solar eclipse, everybody. The annular solar eclipse this uh, Saturday. Uh, make sure that you... Uh, well, find a good spot, but make sure you do it safely. Uh, don't stare at this thing directly. Uh, we don't want uh, you listening blindly to the show. Although, uh, if we have any of those of you out there who are listening blindly to the show, thank you. And from the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest, I'm Jeremy Scott. Good night and God bless. <laughs>